toddler's room didn't get to see a picture of Hazel. So we're going to show Hazel again. There she is. Who wouldn't want to look at a cute baby more than once, right? All right, so now everybody we hope has seen the baby picture. And uh, good. All right, thank you. That's excellent. Well, we're welcoming Hazel, and uh, this morning we have uh, the sad duty of saying goodbye to Nell Harrington. Nell has been worshiping with us for some time, and this week she is moving to Arizona to live closer to her family, and it has been a great privilege to get to know Nell, and we wish her well as she goes uh, to the Southwest. May God be with you, Nell, as you go. Uh, We love you and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, Today's message is called How to Listen to a Bad Sermon, and I borrowed that title from Legan Duncan, and I borrowed it, I'm using it this morning for the same reason that he used it, Uh, I have delivered my fair share of bad sermons. Uh, And uh, this morning I want to talk about two different things. We're going to talk about how to listen to a bad sermon, and then we're going to talk about why you should listen to a bad sermon. We're actually going to start with a why this morning, why you should listen to a bad sermon. Now, I should clarify here, uh, I don't think that you should go out on purpose and find the worst preacher you can and then listen to him as often as possible. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that uh, I want to prepare you to face the reality that even the best preachers, those with orthodox theology, those with fine, uh, finely honed interpretive skills, those who um, have great rhetorical power and are able to connect with the congregation, even those preachers have bad sermons. They can be boring. They can preach for too long. They can follow rabbit trails into irrelevance. They can wander. They can be confusing If you can bat 300 and make it into the Hall of Fame, surely we have to acknowledge that you can uh, swing and a miss on a few sermons. Everybody can. Uh, Don't look for bad sermons, but if one is coming your way, uh, hopefully not this morning, uh, here's how I want to give you some help in, in preparing for that. And I want to make the case today that your response to a bad sermon will reflect what you believe about the Bible itself. Or to put it another way, your ability to benefit from a bad sermon is a function of your convictions about what the Scriptures are, what they are in and of themselves. Now, I'll I'll back up for just a minute and tell you that for the ten weeks that I will be preaching over this summer, uh, starting today and, and over the next several months, Whenever I stand behind the pulpit, I hope to lead you on a short journey through Grace's doctrinal statement. Uh, The plan, we're going to spend one week on each of the ten sections in the statement. This is not our normal practice. You know that and I know that. We just finished uh, moving carefully and progressively through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. That's our normal practice. Uh, We were in the Old Testament. After Labor Day, Lord willing, we're going to move to the letters of John in the New Testament. Then when we finish that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, I think. I'm not sure, but I think Ecclesiastes. It will be time for that. We'll be in Ecclesiastes. And then, some of you got that. Then, then, uh, so that's our regular pattern. That's what we do. Uh, But a, a few months ago, I listened to a lecture Uh, by um, Carl Truman, a church historian, about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the church reformer, believed like we do that that churches benefit, that the regular diet of a congregation should be moving uh, through books of the Bible, expositorily through books of the Bible. 
But Luther recognized that one of the weaknesses of that practice, or one of the challenges of that practice, is that it doesn't always lead to systematic teaching. Uh, To solve that problem for his congregation, Luther wrote catechisms, uh, lists of questions and answers that, that, that parents were supposed to teach their children. They were supposed to memorize these catechisms so that they would learn systematically the, the main topics and themes and subjects of the Bible. So this, this walk through our doctrinal statement is meant to supplement our regular diet of expository preaching. And I know that immediately when I, uh, some of you are concerned, you are already, already afraid that this is going to be dull or argumentative or impractical Um, some people when they hear the words doctrine or theology so as if you say um, we're going to talk about doctrine you immediately say oh no Uh, it's going to be too deep too hard to understand too controversial too much in the ivory tower Uh, i understand that concern sometimes that's the way we christians uh, talk some of you, some of you, you love to debate and discuss and define and the narrower points. At the church needs people like that. We really need people like that. But one of the problems is that some of those people, uh, in their efforts to be so precise, go so deep that they forget how to bring people along with them or to show them what they're doing actually matters. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher of the, in the 20th century. He preached in London at Westminster Chapel from just before World War II until the 1970s. And his preaching, there was no sense in which Martin Lloyd-Jones was a flashy preacher. And it was doctrinal preaching as he moved through books. And uh, um, people used to complain, there's too much doctrine in your sermons, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. We want, we want uh, practical sermons There's too much doctrine. And and when people would complain like that, he would take them to 1 Corinthians, which is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning for just a minute. So a moment ago, Josh read from 1 Corinthians 2. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 3 with you. If I remember in your pew Bibles, 1 Corinthians 2 is on page 1143. So 1 Corinthians 3 in your pew Bibles has got to be close, I would think, to 1143. But I want to read you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with some divisions in the church. There's some leaders who are uh, bringing factions around them, and there's arguments going on. And look what he says to them, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Don't you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. He asks this question, don't you know? If you really knew the truth about the church and what the church is, it would change how you lead in the church. Don't don't you know this? All right, look over with me, chapter 6. Chapter 6, there's factions in the church. They're so bad that they're suing one another. The members of the Corinthian congregation are suing each other. And look at verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? If you really knew the truth, Paul says, about the end times, it would change how you settle your own disputes. Do you know that? 
Now look at verse 9 here. The trouble is still with divisions. And then Paul transitions here and introduces the problems of sexual immorality that are also happening in Corinth. Look what he says at verse 9 of chapter 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Don't you know, if you really knew the truth about how the work that God does to transform his people, it would change the way you treat one another. Look down at verse 12. Uh, Well, let's see, not that verse. How about verse 15? Uh, There's members of the church that are uh, sleeping with prostitutes. Verse 15 do you not know that your members are bodies your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with him her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Then verse nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You read this and you think to yourself, Man, there's a lot that the Corinthians don't know. Right? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? If you really knew the truth about the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, it would change how you treat your body, what you do with your body. Now, you and I both know that there's a difference between knowing the facts and knowing in your heart, right? You can know certain things up here in your mind that you don't know down in your heart. And, and heart knowledge is where transformation takes place. But even at a a minimum, for you to have heart knowledge, you've got to know up here. Martin Lloyd-Jones had very little patience for people who thought, think that doctrine can't be applicable or doctrine isn't helpful because Paul over and over again says, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? Uh, Every week what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, our doctrinal statement and I want to answer four basic questions about each section. First of all, I want to ask the question, answer the question, what does the statement say? What does it mean? What are these paragraphs communicating? Second, the question I want to ask and answer is, can you show this to me from the Bible? Where Bible people, are these truths clearly in the text of Scripture? And then third, I want to ask and answer the question, is it true? Is it believable? Do reasonable people believe what this doctrinal statement says? And then lastly, I want to ask and answer the question, how does it apply? How does it apply to us? So every week we'll look at these 10 paragraphs that summarize what we believe and we'll talk about the fact, what does it say? Can you show me in the Bible? Is it true? How does it apply? Today, the focus of our application is going to be on our practices when we meet together as a church. We gather on 52 mornings a year uh, on Sundays here. Here we are again, and we spend a lot of time together reading the Bible. We recite a psalm, we read the scripture, and then we say, thanks be to God. And we spend at least half of our time when we gather together unfolding a specific text of scripture. We sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we study the Bible. Does the Bible is the Bible actually worthy of this level of devotion? Can it sustain this level of attention? What do we believe about it that gives it such preeminence in our weekly meetings? Does it deserve to have such a controlling influence in the life of our church? 
let's read what our doctrinal statement says about the Bible. Each week we're going to do that. So if you don't have it yet, you can get out the note sheet and there is written down our paragraph that summarizes what we believe about the Bible itself. So let's read this together. Shall we out loud? We'll all read it together uh, and we'll begin. We believe the Bible is God's truth for all people for all times. It is complete in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. It is without error in whatever it teaches in the original writings. It is God-breathed in every word, divinely preserved and therefore trustworthy. It is God's written propositional revelation. It is the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks. The Holy Spirit directed human authors so that through their individual personalities and literary styles, they composed and recorded God's word. The true meaning of scripture is found as God's people diligently apply a literal, contextual, grammatical, and historical method of interpretation under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All right, this morning, uh, why should you listen to a bad sermon? If, if the sermon is bad because the preacher doesn't believe the Bible, you shouldn't listen. But if the sermon is bad because the preacher is having a, bad, a hard time, you should still listen, not because of what you believe about the preacher, but because of what you believe about the Bible. So let me summarize it three ways. We're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about the purpose of the Bible. Then secondly, we're going to talk about the nature of the Bible, what it is. And then third, we're going to talk about the qualities of the Bible. So we're going to talk about these three things, the purpose, the nature, and the qualities of the Bible. First, the purpose. Why do we have the Bible? Why did God give us this book? God gave us the Bible so that we could know him. That's the purpose of the Bible, so that we could know him. This is indicated in our, in our doctrinal statement by the word revelation. Revelation, God reveals himself to human beings in a variety of ways. We're going to talk about some more of those in a minute. But he reveals himself to us so that we can know him. Oh, we're talking about the Bible, but, but I have a few verses that are written on your note sheet about the other ways that God reveals himself and how they talk about knowing him or what we can know about him. So one of the ways that God reveals himself in addition to the Bible is through nature. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. God receive, reveals himself through nature, and through nature we know of his glory. There was that very strange yellow orb in the sky a few minutes ago. We haven't seen it in such a long time. Friday, I was convinced that there was some cosmic force that had accidentally transported us to Seattle, and I thought we were living in Seattle. Then yesterday, that same force was at work. We were all transformed, transferred to London, England, because that's all that anybody was talking about. We fought a war 200 years ago, so we wouldn't have to do anything else with that kooky family. All right, I don't know what is happening. I know that I just got really distracted. The heavens declare the glory of God. God reveals himself in nature so that we can know his glory. God reveals himself in history. Look what Paul said in Acts 17, 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that human beings would seek him 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God has ordered nature to show us his glory. He has ordered history so that we would seek him, so that we could know him, find him. God has revealed himself supremely in his son, the Lord Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Paul, uh, John wrote about Jesus in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. God has revealed himself so that we can know him. So the Bible is for so that we can know him. Where do we get the idea that God's word could be written down? God's word could be written down and copied and studied Well, God did tell Moses to write things down, but preeminently, God himself wrote his own words down. In the book of Exodus 20, when when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words that would be central to the covenant with Israel, God wrote them down himself. God wrote them down for us to read and study and distribute. And he starts in Acts 20 by telling the people, uh, uh, introducing himself in the words that he has written He says, I am the Lord, Exodus 22, your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. A few minutes ago, Josh read from 1 Corinthians 2. How do we know the mind of God? By the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who moved the prophets to record God's word. So why do we have the Bible? So that we could know God. You know this. You know this. You know the importance of words like this. You use your words to know people too. I want you to think for just a minute about the last time that you met someone. Last time you met someone new. Perhaps it was here this morning. That'd be wonderful. You meet them and then you use your words to, to find out about them or to to reveal yourself to them. You ask them questions and you share. You tell stories. You talk about what you love and hate. You reveal yourself in order to know them. Relationships are built on self-disclosure and God has revealed himself to us so that we could know him. Do you know the name A.J. Jacobs? A.J. Jacobs is an American journalist and over the last several years he has written books about his lifestyle experiments. So for one year, he committed himself to reading the Encyclopedia Britannica from cover to cover. And then he wrote a book about the joys and sorrows of it. It He called it The Know-It-All. And then he uh, spent a year trying to follow as much of the advice about healthy living as he could find. And the title of that book was called Drop Dead Healthy. And then uh, another of his books is called The Year of Living Biblically. So A.J. Jacobs sat down with the Bible and four weeks he read the Bible and he wrote down every command that he possibly could find and he endeavored to, for one year, follow those commands. Part of the law of Moses forbids a man to, from shaving a certain part of his face. So A.J. Jacobs stopped shaving and started growing a beard. He looked like a member of ZZ Top. Uh, the Bible says that adulterers are to be stoned. He lived in New York City. He figured everybody was an adulterer. So he used to carry little pebbles around in his pocket, and when they weren't looking, he would chuck one at them. Okay? It's very strange. He tried to follow all the rules about being clean and unclean. Now, the problem with this experiment, he wrote about it wonderfully, the problem with that experiment is that he did not read the Bible historically. We read that in our doctrinal statement. He didn't read the Bible recognizing that it's an unfolding story. But he also read the Bible as just a book of rules. 
And the Bible is not just a book of rules. And the Bible is not just a book of stories. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. That he, he gave it to us to initiate and to form and to maintain a relationship with us. So that's what the purpose of the Bible. It is so that, God would, so that God, we could know God. Let's talk here secondly, though, about the nature of the Bible. The nature of the Bible. Our doctrinal statement in keeping with 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Bible is God-breathed. God-breathed. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Your translation might not say God-breathed. It might say inspired, which is a wonderful word and a word that Christians have used for a long time to describe the Bible. It is inspired. Uh, uh, and we should use that word. The Bible is, in, we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. Now, there's one problem with that word, though. The word inspired means to breathe in. And the Bible, the Greek word that's translated inspired in the Bible is actually breathed out. See the difference? <laughs> Here's the problem, though. You know, the word for breathing out is expire, and nobody's going to talk about the expiration of the Bible. All right, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're not going to do that. But, but the Bible is, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. It is God-breathed. It's, it's source. The Bible is from God. 2 Peter 1.21 helps us here understand this, how this worked a little bit. For prophecy, the, the scriptures say, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So scripture didn't come from human beings, but human beings were carried along by the Spirit. That word carried along is used in the Gospels to describe how a boat on the Sea of Galilee would be moved by the wind. The wind would blow into the sails of those ships, those boats, and they would move throughout the Sea of Galilee. And the Holy Spirit moved and the prophets would write. This divine human activity is described really well, I think, in our doctrinal statement. The Holy Spirit directed human authors so that through their individual personalities and literary styles, they composed and recorded God's word. The nature of the Bible is it is God-breathed. It's God's. It's from Him. It's not merely human thoughts about God, but it is God's revelation of Himself. And because it comes from God, it is true. Because God does not lie. It is without error in everything that it teaches. Now third, let's talk about the qualities of the Bible. The qualities of the Bible. So we're talking about why our church is so centered around the Bible. Why do we spend so much time reading and discussing it? Because of its purpose, so that we can know God. Because of its nature, it's God-breathed and therefore without error. And third now, we're going to talk about its qualities. I want to discuss four of them. And the four that I want to give you, this is a list that is a common way that theologians have talked about the Bible. Four of them, and you can remember them with the word scan. Scan, it's a great word. I probably would want to talk about the A first, but, it, but the word X isn't a, isn't a word. So we're going to talk about scan. And the first quality of the Bible we're going to talk about is its sufficiency. We believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The Bible teaches its own sufficiency. In 2 Timothy 3.16 we have the Bible so that the man of God, the servant of God, could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those are sufficient words. Thoroughly 
and every. The Bible is sufficient in telling us how a church should be formed and how it should function and what it should do. It's sufficient. Now, secondly here, we affirm the Bible's clarity. Clarity. You can understand the Bible. It is possible to understand it. God gives it to us so that we can understand it. That's the point. You ever heard anybody make the complaint? They say, uh, you can make the Bible say anything you want. That's why our doctrinal statement very clearly says that the meaning of Scripture is found when you apply, it's not very poetic language, but it's a wonderful language, a literal, contextual, grammatical, and historical method of interpretation with the help of the Holy Spirit. We believe the Bible is understandable. It can be understood. We believe in the Bible's clarity. Third, we believe in the Bible's authority. This might be the place to start, I suppose, if I was going to rank them in order of importance. Authority. Our doctrinal statement says the Bible is the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks. We judge everything by the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Bible gets the last word always. Now this helps us and when we think about our traditions and what tradition, the function of tradition, some traditions that churches practice are efforts of their grandparents or great-grandparents to follow the Bible. So your grandparents or your great-grandparents sat down with the Bible in their churches and they tried, they understood, what does this say? And then they, they made attempts to practice it and those practices became our traditions. So... Uh, we're, we're doing things the way grandma did, not because she's just grandma, but because grandma loved the Bible and was trying to understand the Bible, and, and we're going to do the things that grandma, grandpa, great-grandpa tr- tried to do. So that's where some of our traditions come from. Some of our traditions come from the fact that there was someone who just wanted to be in charge. They didn't really care much about the Bible. They just wanted to have their word established. And that's where some of our traditions come from. It is... So we come to our traditions with discernment, with discernment, recognizing that it's the authority of the Bible that matters. We try to tell the difference sometimes between those traditions that come from the scriptures and those traditions that come because somebody was power hungry. There's a difference. We believe in the authority of the Bible. Finally, we believe in the necessity of the Bible, the necessity of the Bible. Without the Bible, we would be lost we must have it in order to, to tell us about God. So we read Psalm 19.1 a, a few moments ago. The heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 3 of Psalm 19 says, very interesting, they, that is the stars and the, the sun and the moon, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. It's strange. Speech, word, sound. And then he says, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Well, what is he doing there? seems contradictory. How can you have a voice but no sound? Well, um, he's talking about the fact that on the one hand, the revelation of God in nature is great because everyone can understand it. Mm. Everyone can see it. Regardless of whether or not you can read, regardless of what language you speak, you can see the revelation of God in nature. It is multicultural and multilingual in the sense that there's no words, but then there's a problem. There's no words. That's a problem too. Because without words, it's easy to misinterpret. Have you ever played Pictionary? Have you ever played Charades? Fun games. 
And it's possible to communicate with charades. It's possible to communicate with Pictionary, but uh, it's easy to misinterpret, isn't it? So nature speaks, and everybody in the world can get the message, but it's easy to misinterpret that message, so we need words. We need the words from God. We center our life as a church around this book because of what we believe about it. We believe that it is God's book for us. Whenever we have a guest speaker who comes, who has never been to our church before, I always warn them when I email them. Uh, The most recent person I think uh, that I did this with was uh, Doug Finkbeiner, a professor from LBC. He's a fine preacher. He'll come back sometime, we hope. But before he came, I sent him an email message and I, I warned him. I said, we want you in our church to unfold the Bible. We want you to read it to us, explain it to us, and apply it. This is our church, this is our heritage, this is what we want. And sometimes I said to him, we're proud of it. We're a little self-righteous about it. Other churches might not preach the Bible, but we do, right? Friends, though, our love for the Bible is not a statement of our strength. It's a statement of our desperation. We have to have the Bible because without it we are lost. We're confused. We're fools. We read the Bible not because we believe that we are better than anyone else, because our church is better than any other church. We read the Bible because we are certain that we are not better than anyone else or better than any other church. Our commitment to the Bible is not an expression of how awesome we are. It's a reflection of the fact that we are not awesome. And we know it. We have to have this book because we are nothing in and of ourselves. We are poor and we need riches. We are hungry and we need bread. We are thirsty and we need water. We are in the dark and we need light. We are fools and we need wisdom. So we read this book and we come to this book over and over and over again. Thinking about that now at this point in time gives me an opportunity to remind you that the the reason that this book is so central to us is because of the one who is at the center of this book. John 5, Jesus says, You search the scriptures and the scriptures speak of me. Sometimes theologians, they talk about God's written word and God's living word. God's written word, the Bible, and God's living word. Jesus said, if you're hungry, good news for you, I'm the bread of life. If you're thirsty, (laughs) that's good. Come to me, I'll give you living water. It'll be a spring of life in you. If you're sick, I'm a doctor, I've come One of the reasons that we love the Bible is because the Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life. What's astounding about his life, Jesus' life, is how dependent on the Bible he was. You would think, so me by nature, by nature the Bible tells us that we are human beings, are children of wrath, that is we have disobeyed God, we're born in a state of rebellion against God. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God by nature. Which one of us do you think is therefore most dependent on the Word of God? (laughs) Well, Jesus knew and depended on these scriptures more than we do. He lived a perfect life before God. The Bible tells us that he died for us 
as our substitute in our place, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve. He died and he rose again. And this is the great command, the great command of the Bible. The great invitation and command of the Bible is that you must turn and trust in him and you will receive forgiveness in his name. Recognize that he is the savior who died to rescue you from your sins. The Bible tells us that. That's the most important command in all of Scripture. Friend, it's the command for you if you have not turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus. God gives life and forgiveness to those who ask for them in Jesus' name, through Jesus, because of Jesus. We read the Bible not because we're healthy, strong people. We read the Bible because we are sick, weak people. And here is the balm of our soul, and it speaks to us about the great Lord Jesus. And we hold on to it despite the questions and challenges and objections that some people have to it. Now, for a few minutes, I want to talk to you about the truthfulness of what we believe about the Bible. Is, is what it says true? Is it reasonable to believe about this about the Bible? Every Easter and Christmas for a long time, uh, when I was growing up, the major American news magazines, Newsweek, Time, U.S. News and World Report, they would put articles, and they'd always be timed around Easter and around Christmas, articles that would tell you that we can't possibly believe what the Bible tells us about Jesus of Nazareth. There's no possible way that this can be historically accurate. This is one of the ways that people have critiqued the Bible. Sometimes people raise objections that are the books that are here. So... We, our doctrinal statement mentions the 66 books. Well, there's some people who say, are you sure about that? Why the 39 in the Old Testament? Why the 27 in the New Testament? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not the Gospel of Thomas? Or they raise questions about the text. We have thousands of ancient pieces of the New Testament and none of them are the originals that Paul or Matthew or Mark wrote. Um, can, can we trust them to give us the original our doctrinal statement anticipates that. It talks about the original writings. Can we trust the historicity of the Bible? Now, for one moment, I want to touch on one small slice of that question, and I want to talk to you about the historicity, historicity of the Gospels. I went to a seminar last month where I learned a little bit about this from a man by the name of Peter Williams. He teaches in Cambridge. He has a book coming out at, at the end of the year where he wrote about some of these things. Uh, he, I talked to him a little bit afterwards and he said, you know, I have a lot of relatives who are not followers of Jesus and I'm writing this book for them about the historical reliability of the Gospels. Can you, can you trust it? So there's a common belief that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not written by the uh, authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that they were not written by eyewitnesses. I think they were, but a lot of people think they were not. And, and the belief is that, uh, the common belief is that long after Jesus walked the earth, these gospel stories were written in order to supplement the cult that had risen around Jesus. Jesus was this great religious teacher. He was crucified by the Romans. And as his first followers spread the news about him, stories were written about him and teachings were created and people began to worship him. And that's where the gospels come from. That is a common belief. One problem with that view is that the Gospels contain details in the text that require eyewitness familiarity. I'll talk to you about specifically about that, but there are small details in the text that only eyewitnesses would know. Let me, let me give you some examples. All right, so think about this with me. 
in your own life. If, if you meet someone in the street who comes up to you and says, I love coming to Lancaster to see the Amish and my favorite town to visit is Ephrata, right? You would know that they're not natives, right? They're probably God love them from New Jersey or something like that, right? So you know... Uh, you know that I'm not native when I talk about being in third grade and going to elementary school. I say, <laughs> Scott knows, right? So I went to elementary school. I didn't go to elementary. I can't even say it. Elementary, right? Uh, so I'm not native. You know that. If, if you picked up a novel about Millersville and the main character describes going to John Hur's in the middle of the day and is, she appreciates the young man who loaded the groceries in her bag, you would know that that person has never been to Millersville in the middle of the day at John Hur's. Because everybody who bags groceries at John Hur's in the middle of the day is an old man. You have to be at least 80 to work at John Hur's before 2 p.m., all right? That is the rule at John Hur's. If you're a native, you know that. If you're not a native, you don't know that. So the Gospels are written with that level of detail. Uh, for example, so the writers uh, consistently talk about, uh, for example, they, they consistently talk about going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you travel south to go to Jerusalem, you still talk about going up to Jerusalem. Why do you go up to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is at the top of a hill. And even if you're traveling south, you go up to Jerusalem. The Gospels describe Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector. He's the only tax collector in the Gospels described as a chief tax collector. And it makes sense that he is a chief tax collector and no one else is because Zacchaeus lived in Jericho, which is right on the border uh, between two administrative districts and right along a major trade route. It would be a great place for chief tax collectors to be. When the Gospels talk about the cities around the Sea of Galilee, they write about them uh, as they are in the order that a native would think about them. Uh, you say, if, you, if you're thinking about where we live, you would talk about uh, Lancaster, Nesville, and Lidditz. You would never say Nesville and Lidditz and Lancaster because that's not right. right? But, but you're, you're an eyewitness. You, you know that because this is your home. And the Gospels are written that way. They contain all of these little details. And there are no first-hand written accounts of the land of Palestine with this level of specificity that they could have used, that someone could have used to make up these stories. So if I want to know if I'm going to go up to Jerusalem or not today, I could use Google, right? I'm going to Google it and figure it out. Or if, if, I, if I want to know something, maybe uh, I could use an encyclopedia. But there was no Google and there were no encyclopedias when the Gospels were written. In order to write like this, you have to either be an eyewitness or you must have extensive interview notes from your conversations with eyewitnesses. So we believe that the Gospels are reliable because they bear all the marks of eyewitness accounts. The Bible is without error and whatever it teaches. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the, a famous German pastor, when he was studying a theology, he was a theologian, when he was studying, what was in vogue in that era was to deny the truthfulness of the Bible. 
And as time went on, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's trust in the Bible actually grew. I think part of it happened when he came to the United States. He was from Germany. When he came to the United States, he spent uh, uh, several months at least in Harlem. And he worshipped at African-American churches in Harlem that, that, that among a group of believers that take the Bible seriously. It began to shape how he viewed the Bible. One of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed is he said that one of the advantages of finding errors in the Bible or deciding it's not trustworthy is that you then get the, the freedom to pick and choose what parts of it you want to obey. So follow me here. Some objections to the Bible, not all of them, not all of them, but some of them, are not driven chiefly by intellectual problems with the Bible, but they're driven by moral problems with the Bible. If I can establish to you that the Bible isn't trustworthy, then I don't have to do what it says. Is that, your, is that true of you? Hmm. Now, let me finish this morning with just a few minutes by talking to you about how to listen to a bad sermon. So we've done the why. Why do we listen to bad sermons? Because of what this book is. Now let's talk about how. I have four suggestions. We don't talk about this subject very much, the subject of listening to sermons. The Puritans used to preach for uh, two or three hours at a time, and they spent a lot of time instructing people in how to listen to sermons. They, They did this a lot. Tim Keller said that a preacher has to preach 200 sermons before he can in any way be considered a good preacher. So I started here in, that's four years, four years of preaching. I started in 1999. Some of you suffered until 2003. Terrible. Our church, actually, okay, let's be honest. Our church has listened to bad sermons because on the one hand, we're committed to trying to help younger preachers get better at preaching. So we cut them some slack. We take one for the team so that other churches can get good preachers. We let them bore us with the Bible so that they don't bore somebody else with the Bible. Howard Hendricks used to tell us in the seminary it's a sin to bore someone with the Bible. But, but that happens. This is, a, this is a very gracious church. It's a wonderful church to preach in. It's a very kind people. They ignore all kinds of mistakes. It's wonderful. Even the Apostle Paul put somebody to sleep once. Okay? So Paul my only hope. All right, number one. Here's how to listen to a bad sermon. Number one, read the text. Read the text. As best we can, we print next week's sermon text in the bulletin so you can read ahead. Next week it'll be John 1. It's not printed in the bulletin, but that's what Wayne is preaching on. You can read it in advance. You can invest in the text beforehand. It will help you. It will help you know what questions to ask. Maybe you and your family could take the opportunity to read through the text in advance on the Saturday night before church. And, and talk about what it says. It will prepare you in advance for thinking about some of the questions that maybe that preacher will answer. Second, you should pray. Pray for yourself and pray for the preacher. I have been sitting in pews. I remember sitting over here in this pew and praying not to God but to the preacher. In my mind, I was thinking to myself, oh, please sit down. Please just stop. Just stop. Just stop. It wasn't Scott. It wasn't anybody that you know. Uh, But I remember sitting in those pews praying to the preacher, please just stop. Uh, Well, don't pray to the preacher. Pray to God. Pray to God. Pray to God for the preacher and for yourself. Pray for yourself because listening to sermons is hard work. 
It's not easy to sit in those pews or in those slightly more comfortable chairs downstairs where the temperature is sometimes wonky, right? It's not easy to sit and listen to someone talk and talk. You work really hard. Some have really hard jobs. And on Sundays you come to church and you're tired. And it's so easy to be distracted. So pray that God would strike you with truth. Pray, pray, pray. Now third, beware of developing a critical spirit. Beware of developing a critical spirit. It's tempting on Sundays, isn't it? Tempting on Sundays to go home and have a roast beef for dinner and then with your words roast the church. It's easy to do that. Tear apart the sermon, tear apart the scripture reading, tear apart the music, tear apart the preaching. People didn't say hi to me. They weren't friendly enough. Where's Don Landis when we need him? See, people are just developing critical spirits. But remember, you don't want to cultivate that same spirit in the minds and hearts of your children, do you? Or the people that are listening to you, that you're eating with? Talk about the blessings of the morning and not the failings. Finally, number four here. If the preacher is struggling to be interesting, study the scriptures yourself. Study the scriptures yourself. Here's the book. Read the text. Read the text. What's here? What do you observe? What can you see in this text? There's a lot. You make the observations. You make the connections. You make the applications that are here. This is God's book. He reveals himself in it. The preacher may be having a hard time, but this is still rock-solid truth. So read the scriptures. There have been times when I have made dinner for my children, and the, the, those meals have been disasters. If you ask them, they will tell you with a lot of glee about the time that I served what they have called horrible hamburgers. How can you mess up hamburgers? I, I'm just gifted that way. So um, when there are horrible hamburgers on the table, I don't resent it when my children take the hamburger rolls and put peanut butter and jelly on it to make themselves a sandwich, right? Take the hamburger off and put the peanut butter and jelly on, right? I don't resent them. I, I didn't feed you well, go ahead, don't starve, have at it, right? This is not always an easy book. Uh, it doesn't always yield its treasures without digging and without effort. But why do we work at it? Because it's God's book. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and I am grateful to you for this congregation and the mark of grace that is in this church that, that we do indeed love your word and want to hear what it says. Thank you that you have awakened us in that sense to our desperation for it. We need this book. We are thankful to you that you have given it to us. The Holy Spirit breathed out and, and the prophets recorded your words and the apostles and they've been copied and copied over and over again by people who love the book and they've been translated by men and women who have a great heart for this book and, and printed and distributed and here we have it and how thankful we are to you for it. I'm thankful to you for the grace that in our church that longs for it and, and, and grateful for the people that you have used to provide it. Oh, I, I pray that you would increase our confidence and increase our joy in it. 
This is true because it's yours and it's precious to us. Make us with the Lord Jesus and Moses say, uh, we need your word more than our daily bread. It's sweeter to us than honey. It's more precious to us than silver or gold. It's light to our feet. It's lamps to our paths. It is water for the thirsty. It is the emancipation proclamation of those in the, caught in the slavery of sin. Elevated in our midst as you elevate your own glory and your son who is the subject of this book supremely. We pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name saying, Amen.